Okay, good morning, everyone. My name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors here. If I can ask you all to come and find a seat, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started. Um, Jesus, it's good to be together today to worship you, to learn about you. Um, I pray as I speak today, Lord, that you would use me. Holy Spirit, that you'd empower me and speak through me. Lord, that you'd help us to be present and focused on what you're wanting to do here, to hear the words you're wanting to speak to us, to have open hearts to respond to you in worship and in devotion. I pray you would teach us, but more than that we would just learn today, that you would transform us deeply and permanently. So we open ourselves up to you and say, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are into part three of our Healthy Relationships series today. And uh, over the last few weeks, what we've been doing is talking a little bit more about loving God and loving people, which is what we're going to be looking at in the series over the next couple of weeks. And then also engaging with the everyday things of normal life, which are so significant to our discipleship. And I love for God and I love for one another. So I'm really excited about this series. We also started the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course in IGCs this week which uh, I think has been going well from everything I've been hearing. But we started that in our GCs this week. And what was fun in our GC afterwards, and then also coming here today, is that you guys are catching some of the tools and the sayings that people used in that video this week. I had someone this morning, um, I told them some news of ours, and they said to me, that's new information to me. And then someone else said, I'm puzzled about that, or I've noticed and I would prefer. But uh, my favorite, and I think from what I've heard, a few people really enjoyed Jerry Scazzaro talking about the hammer. Do you guys remember that? The hammer that can be used to build up or to kill, which um, I just think I enjoyed because Jerry's got a certain look to her, and I thought it seems like she's got a bit of a past, and she's telling us, she's letting us a little bit into her life. But I'm, I'm excited and expectant just from what we're doing on Sundays, what's happening in GC's midweek, and just our own time in these devotional books what God is going to do in us as a church. If you didn't get one of the devotional books, we do have a few up front that you can grab. But even just as we worship today, as Adam did offering, just seeing some of these scriptures and ideas come into our mind today, I think is such a beautiful thing. But last week, Andy spoke about um, what keeps us from loving people well. And after the retreat, he's going to be doing a part two to that, which is really, how do we love people well? How do we love like Jesus? So I'm kind of the meat in the sandwich in between a little 1B. And I'm going to talk about, um, <laughs> I'm glad you like that, like you and I have got a thing going, the rest of the group, I don't know, it's not happening, but um, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about healthy relationships with screens and really content. And I guess another way of looking at that would be what it looks like to follow Jesus in 2023 with a smartphone, with the internet, with a laptop, with a Netflix account, all of those things. What it looks like to follow Jesus with all of these things available to us, which can so distract us from God and so distract us from loving each other. Well, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I just want you to think back a little bit to when you were younger and what you thought the future was going to look like. Um, and I was thinking about that this week and thinking, I remember like the influence of the Jetsons on my life. Any Hanna-Barbera <laughs> fans in the room? I was sold. I was like, this, the future looks good to me, feel good, fun. We're going to live in those houses which are like on top of some kind of pillar, flying cars. We're going to have a robot house cleaner who's going to take care of everything those cool futuristic clothes, and then Back to the Future came along, and also feel-good, fun vision of the future. Like, time travel might mean that you could have an awkward situation with your mom, but other than that, you're going to be riding like a hovering skateboard, which will be fun. It just looks great. 
And then when I was 10, I had my first sleepover where we did an all-nighter. And between 12 and 2, we watched Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which you should not have been watching as a 10-year-old, I, I don't know, 1996 or whenever it was. And I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger and Edward Furlong were incredible. It was an amazing film. But at the same time, it's a vision of the future and technology and robots, which is very dystopian and negative. It's like, in the future, the robots are going to kill everyone. And then a few years later, the Matrix came along and it said, no, 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 they're not going to kill us. They're just going to enslave us and turn us into batteries. That's, that's the future. So you've got like a really feel-good, fun vision of the future, kind of negative, dystopian, destructive kind of vision of the future. And then in 2008, a movie is released by Disney Pixar, which has got like a much more realistic vision of the future, at least according to what we're living today. And I'm surprised because it's still a bit satirical. It's still a little bit dark. But Wally came along and it gave us a picture of the future where everyone had a screen in front of their face all of the time. <laughs> I rewatched some of these clips this week and you see people just floating along in these little flying seats. Everywhere they go, screen in front of them, either talking to a friend or watching a show, there's advertising on the side. And then if you do happen to break your attention from the screen, there are just massive screens everywhere you look telling you what to think, what to do, what to want, who to be, shaping you in every single way. And there are a few scenes where Wally interrupts people from what they're doing, and they seem to like kind of almost wake up from their coma watching these screens and see the world around them and be aware of what they're missing. It's really bleak, it's surprising for Disney, but it's also a pretty beautiful vision of the future. And what I was gonna do this morning is I was gonna say, take out your phone and cover it up so no one else sees, I'm not gonna embarrass you, and let's look at our screen time from the week before. But what I realized this morning, I know we probably all get a bit of a screen time update on Sundays, but something Apple does on a Sunday is it wipes your screen time as though it was scarlet and makes it white as snow every <laughs> Sunday morning, which kind of amazed me. I was wanting to use this as an illustration to see our screen time, and on Sundays it goes away. It's a new week, it's a new start, it's a clean slate. And it's wild to me that you can see your sleep and your steps for the whole year, every month, every day, every week kind of mapped out. But screen time disappears every week. I'm sure there's a way you can find it out, but it disappears every week to make it hard to see how much time we're glued to our phones and looking at them. It's really, really fascinating. I think at the same time, none of us are gonna deny that we spend a lot of time looking at screens. So I wanted to share a few stats with you that I found out about phones and laptops and TVs just to help us be aware of how much time we are spending on our screens. These are all from September this year. Firstly, according to um, Data Reportal, the average screen time of users between 16 and 64 is six hours and 37 minutes. Now you hear that, you're like, okay, but that's average. That's not high, that's not low. That is the average person in that age, age range of 50s, 60s, maybe even like all of that range. Three, sorry, six hours and 37 minutes. It's wild. In terms of the time we use on our phones, it's about three hours and 46 minutes. Our laptops or computers is about two hours and 51 minutes. On average, the average American checks their phone 96 times a day, which I wasn't shocked by. I think it's a lot, especially if you think about how much time you're spending each time you pick up your phone. 96 pickups a day, but we touch our phones 2,617 times a day, according to Johan Hari and Stolen Focus, which seems wild to me. 96 pickups where we look at our phone, 
but 2,600 pickups where we just touch it. And I was thinking of my daughter who's got a blanket with her everywhere she goes. Some of you know it, it's called More Too. It's a very important part of her brand and her identity. But um, at school recently, her teachers have asked her to put this in her cubby during the day. And if she needs to, she can go and give it a touch or a little cuddle if she needs like a bit of time with More Too. For us as adults, the average touch time of our phones is 2,600 times a day that we feel that we need to touch our little comfort blanket and get something that we need from. Just check that it's there. Just make sure that it can give us what we need. And I couldn't validate this, but I did hear this multiple times this week. They reckon it's mid 80% of people sleep next to their phones. I'm one of them. But one of the stats I heard is that 21% of people sleep holding their phones. That's one in five. That means about 14 of us in this room sleep holding our phones at night. It's not a judgment call. That's just a really interesting fact about the relationship we've got with our phones at the moment. Among U.S. children, screen time usage is highest between kids aged 11 to 14 who are spending over nine hours a day on screens on average, according to the CDC. And then I thought I'd just throw this in for fun. Uh, South Africans have got the highest screen time usage in the world, spending an average of nine hours, 27 minutes glued to their devices a day. You're welcome. I'm a gold medalist at this stuff. I'm a world leader in screen time usage that you've got sharing with you today. Um, which I think is pretty sad and pretty terrible. But in this uh, series that we're in, we're looking at Jesus' greatest commandment, how to love God and love people well. So it says this in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That's what we're wanting to grow in and learn skills with and think through. So why are we talking about screen time and the content we look at and the media and devices that we have in this series? Why is this so important? And at the same time, what, like how do we navigate this as disciples of Jesus? How do we navigate this moment that we live in and the things that we have and all already use? I thought I'd start with a quote from a book called You Are What You Love by James K. A. Smith. He says, if the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, turning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars, examples, and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. And what he's trying to say, and what I want to start with today, is the fact that the things that we do, do do something to us. One of his lines is, if we're looking at our screens a lot, if we're absorbing a lot of content, if um, we are using these devices and touching them 2,600 times a day, it is doing something to us. It is impacting us and shaping us and forming us or discipling us in a certain way into a certain type of person. And we've got to be aware of that and think through what is technology doing to us and what is it doing to me? Because some of these things aren't just things we do occasionally. It's not even things we're doing daily. It's things we're doing hourly or every couple of minutes. 
And we're not just doing it sometimes, we're doing it consistently over days, weeks, months, years, maybe for some of us over a decade now. I got my first smartphone when I was 17, that's 20 years. These things are shaping and forming who we're becoming and the type of lives that we're living, which is really significant for us to think through what it looks like to love God and love people. What is technology doing to us? There's a, a quote by Sean Parker, who you might remember from The Social Network. He was played by Justin Timberlake, real stud in the movie. And um, in that film, well, in real life, he's the founder of Napster and was the first president of Facebook. He became a multi-billionaire through Facebook. And in 2017, he was interviewed in front of a big crowd of people. And he said um, that the creators of Facebook all got together and asked themselves this question, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And then he said in that same moment that Facebook literally changes your relationship with society and with each other. It probably interferes with productivity in weird ways. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. And that was in 2017. That's when some of this still felt a little bit newer, you know, 2017. Today, the research on all of the stuff on social media and devices and all of the content we're consuming is like being explored a whole lot more. And we see that actually this is affecting our health and affecting our sleep and affecting our mental health. Uh, some of the research I said, said I read said that extensive screen time, particularly linked to social media, contributes to feelings of loneliness and anxiety and dissatisfaction with life and depression and low self-esteem. Jean Twenge, who is a professor in San Diego and released the book Generations this last year, she uh, has studied teenage use of social media and devices and says in 2007 when the iPhone was released, all of a sudden teen um, mental health really dipped. All of, a side, all of a sudden, suicidal ideation went up, depression went up, self-harm went up. And then in 2012, when social media became pretty much ubiquitous, all teenagers were using it. Again, it spiked even more. On top of that, we've become distracted so that we're not as productive at work, can't concentrate as well. Our performance, our performance has dropped at work and with studies and with so many of the things we do. We're very, very distracted because of all of these things. And although all of these things, and I'm sure some of you are thinking about this, these devices, this content, these apps, all of this stuff is morally neutral. It's not bad in and of itself. At the same time, the reality is that the design is not neutral. The people who have designed these things have got an intention in mind, a purpose in mind, and there is a lot of money behind the design and intention of these things. Another quote by Johan Hari, he says, it is not the smartphone in and of itself, it is the way the apps on the smartphone and the sites on our laptops are designed. The phones we have and the programs that run them were deliberately designed by the smartest people in the world to maximally grab and maximally hold our attention. Which means that this addiction is not an accident, it's by design. Our addiction to these things is not an accident, it's by design. No wonder many of us are struggling to pay attention to God and love each other well when we're constantly receiving notifications and all of these pulls and dopamine hits and all of these things that draw us away from what we're doing to our devices and our phones. One more interesting article that I read when I was preparing for today was from 2014 from the New York Times. It was an article called Steve Jobs Was a Low-Tech Parent. And in it, the author Nick Bilton talks about writing something about iPads and then he got a call from Steve Jobs who wasn't too happy. And he said Steve Jobs would do this from time to time. He'd either call you to praise you for your article or to really chew you out for the things that you had said. 
and he says that Steve Jobs was not too happy about what he said about iPads. So he felt a little bit awkward and uncomfortable, and he said something like, your kids must be really enjoying the iPad. And Steve Jobs replied and said, they haven't used it yet. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. Isn't that funny? So he realizes after just the shock of that statement that he didn't actually ask him or find out any more about their home life, like, like what the kids did instead or, or what they did as a family at home. So he contacted Walter Isaacson, who was the person who wrote the biography on Steve Jobs. He spent a lot of time in their home and a lot of time around their family. And he said, what was their home life like? What did their kids do? Like, tell me about it. And Isaacson responded and said, every evening Steve made a point of having dinner at the big long table in their kitchen discussing books and history and a variety of things with all of them. No one ever pulled out an iPad or computer. The kids did not seem addicted at all to their devices. Isn't that surprising? In um, the article, he goes on to interview six other tech executives in Silicon Valley and just asks them what their home life looked like with technology and devices and what their kids did and couldn't do. And obviously there were different rules and regulations and limits that people put in place. But one of the things that everyone said was that there are no screens in the bedroom ever. There was everyone across the board. We just don't have screens in the bedroom. And then each person shared their different stories, you know, days where there would be no tech or no access to devices or maybe the limits they put in place or a certain room that you could go to use a device, but that was the only place you used it or whatever the rules and regulations were. But the thing that stood out in this article was that these tech executives had thought this through. They knew that technology and this content was doing something to them and their families and the way they interacted. So they had thought through how best in their homes and in their families to create a healthy life for everyone and what they were going to do to limit certain things and influences so that their family and their kids and their relationships were strong and healthy and flourishing. So what do we do with all of this? How do we respond? How do we live as disciples with all of these challenges that we face? How do we have relationships that are healthy with God and each other? This is a quote from Andy Croft, who wrote a really helpful book called The TechWise Family. He says, no matter what advertising says, even those beautiful tear-jerking Apple ads, it's from a few years ago, okay? The very best of life has almost nothing to do with the devices we buy. It has a lot to do with the choices we make choices that our devices often make more difficult. I was thinking about this preparing. At the end of my life, I know that none of my happiest memories are gonna to have to do with the device or any content or any apps or anything like that. It's gonna to have to do with people. But at the same time, I'm so distracted from people and these special moments that could be going on because of the pull to devices and apps and content. What is the kind of life which is gonna be a happy life, a flourishing life and a God-honoring life? Now, to answer that today, I want to give us a couple of lenses to look at this through because the Bible doesn't have specific commandments or rules or law for us around technology and content, but it does have a lot of wisdom for us. So I'm hoping to give you four questions today to help you, give you like a bit of a framework to think about this, and we'll end with a few practical ideas that we can put in place with our lives. So the first is this, quality. Is my media diet making me spiritually healthy or sick? Is my media diet making me spiritually healthy or sick? I'm pretty sure all of us can think of eating something at some time that we didn't expect at the time to make us feel the way it made us feel. I did it with some raw chicken the one time. It was a really bad situation. I have some regrets. 
But there have been so many moments in my life where I've eaten something unhealthy, which has made me feel terrible. In 2008, I took um, a team I was leading to a candy factory, and it was tremendous, guys. It was really good. This was Beacon in South Africa. They had this rule that you could eat as much as you wanted on the tour. You just couldn't take anything out with you. And I was like, we're going to clear up, guys. <laughs> You're going out of business because we are here. And I was shocked at how little we ate. I had one candy bar, a couple of uh, strings of red licorice, and a few other, I don't know, sweets and treats. And I was done. I felt gross for the rest of the day. And none of us, none of us put away as much candy as we thought we would. And then what I found out is they had the same rule for all of their employees. You can eat as much candy as you want on site. You just can't take anything home. And the first couple of days, maybe even a week, people would go to town on candy. But then after that, they were done. <laughs> they never wanted to touch it again. It was an amazing, amazing psychological way of doing it. And I'm 37 years old, and I've got a, a bottle of Tums by my bed. And I'm using them often. And I'm realizing <laughs> my body has changed. Um, I can't drink red wine and eat red meat in the way that I used to. I can't have coffee after two if I want to get a good night's sleep. Um, there's acidic foods that I can't touch and other things I've just got to do in moderation. Otherwise, I'm going to be up at 3 a.m. and I'm going to be taking two or three or I don't know how many times you meant, so a whole lot. And even though these foods and drinks might be delicious and I might enjoy them and it might be a great experience, it's not going to be good for my body. It's not going to make me feel good later. It's going to affect me in ways that I'm really going to regret. And like probably all of us have to adjust the foods that we're eating and when we eat them and how much of them we eat and all of that. It's similar with our content diets, the things that we're watching and absorbing. Some of, some of it, the quality is not good for us. It's going to leave us with a bit of a soul ache if we have it or have too much of it. Paul the Apostle gives us a, a really good grid or framework to run what is quality content through. Philippians 4 verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things or make your home in these things. The ESV and NIV say, think about this. The NLT says, fix your thoughts on these things. I thought that was really, really helpful. This comes after two verses about anxiety, where Paul speaks about what to do when we're anxious and how to pray and how to engage God. And it's kind of uh, logical for all of us that the things that we think about and the things that we dwell on and the things that we focus on are going to affect us mentally. They're going to affect our, our spiritual health, our soul health, our mental health. So he tells us to think about the things that we are going to allow to impact us, the things we're going to watch and spend time on, because it will do something to us. Secondly is quantity. Am I consuming too much media? And this is a really interesting one, because it's saying disconnected from the type of content that we're consuming is just the quantity. Is it too much? Is it not good for me? Not in terms of what it is, but just how much of it I'm absorbing. And I think if we go back to the food illustration, there's a reality that, that many of us binge. Many of us are media gluttons. And even if it's just occasionally, we take in too much. And we don't always feel the best at it. Like we take that in and we enjoy it. But then later we're like, oh, I don't feel great. You know, I need to go to bed. I need to be done with the day. And then we see that this is actually the way the algorithm is designed. 
when you finish a Netflix show, a little box pops up in the bottom right corner saying next. And sometimes before you can even say no, it just goes into that show. You finish a movie, there's another movie on on YouTube. It just leads us to a different clip and tries to keep our attention, tries to keep us engaged, tries to keep us watching. It's the attention economy. There's a really good quote by Brett McCracken who writes for the Gospel Coalition. He says, when every square inch of our lives is filled with content, we have no space for anything we consume to be processed into nutrition. If it's all just junk food we binge on, TikTok candies fed to us by AI developed in China, sugary Instagram candies dialed into our taste by a behavioral psychologist on Mark Zuckerberg's payroll, we have no space in our lives to think, make connections, synthesize, discern, consider way we just consume. So probably the two questions to ask ourselves here with quantity is around time and stewardship. It's like to, to actually do a bit of an audit and think, how much time am I spending on these things? And is that good? Just in my own, am I happy with how much time I'm spending watching or looking at or reading or, or on these devices or not? Is and then the stewardship question is in terms of who God has made me to be. The life he's given me, the, the calling I have, the purpose I have in this life. Do I honor God? Am I glorifying God by spending this much time on these devices, by absorbing this much content? Is this too much or is this okay? The third filter is devotion. Is this helping me to love God more? And this is where we need to think about this truth, that just because a show or an app or someone we follow on social media isn't evil or sinful or immoral, it doesn't still mean that we should engage with that thing. You know, just because something is new and interesting doesn't mean that we need it on our phone or we need to have it or we need to be using it. Just because it's not a bad thing doesn't mean that it's something that helps us to love God or to follow Him in this world. Actually, a lot of these things are distracting us from what matters most. In Psalm 46 verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. And I was looking at this word, be still. It means don't do anything, which is kind of obvious. The, the Greek word there for still means to relent, be lazy, leave it alone, and wait. It's literally saying, do nothing and know that I'm God. Stop doing everything. It's, it's like, what are you saying yes to and what are you saying no to? What are the limits you're going to put in place that you can be fully present to God, not doing anything else, not thinking about anything else, but fully present to Him? So I think some of us, even when we come to be with God, we're still multitasking. Uh, our minds are still thinking about other things. Maybe we're finishing a text or, or we're finishing thinking about a conversation we've had or, or we're praying in the middle of driving or something else. We're multitasking. We're giving God 50% of what we're doing, but the rest of us is on something else. And this is saying stop everything. Stop everything and be aware of God. That our knowing of God is connected with our stopping of everything else. That our intimacy with God is linked to our exclusivity of just spending time with Him. And we know this is true. If I went on a date with Shell tonight, you know exactly where I'm going with this. If we're sitting down, we're spending money on some good food, we're having a good drink, and I pull out my phone, and I just start watching YouTube, that date's going to go badly. It's going to be a bad night. Even if it doesn't, even if she's not angry with me, doesn't shout at me, even if whatever it is, even if she does that, we're not going to connect deeply. You know, if I'm listening to her speaking to me while I'm on my phone at the same time, I might take in some of what she's saying, but we are not connecting well and we are not connecting deeply. I'm distracted. And even though maybe not many of us are doing that as overtly, 
in so many ways, we are living a distracted, multitasking life where we're doing a few things at once and not fully present to God and fully present to the people around us. Intimacy requires exclusivity and knowing requires being still. Tony Reinke, in his book, 12 Things the, uh, Your Phone is Doing to You, has this wild statistic. He says, I surveyed 8,000 Christians about social media routines. More than half of the respondents, 54%, admitted to checking a smartphone within minutes of waking. When asked whether they were more likely to check email and social media before or after spiritual disciplines on a typical morning, 73% said before. So what he's saying is most Christians are starting their day with whatever their phone is feeding them rather than with God. And I've done that this week. And I had a time this week where I went to read my Bible and pray. And all I could think about was this one text I just read. I don't remember what the text was. It felt big at the time. It was stressing me out at the time. It wasn't a big deal that day. Whatever it was, whatever my response was, it was not a big thing. I don't remember it now, but the whole time that I was praying, this thing was on my mind and it didn't even matter. And I was thinking to myself, whatever your take is on this stuff, I do not want my phone leading my relationship with God or my prayer life. I don't want my phone setting the agenda for my devotional times with God in the morning. I don't want the things that I see on social media or the email that I read filtering into the things that I'm praying about and why. I want God to set that agenda. I want that to be a time between Him and I, not with this third party, this other person coming in and influencing it. What is shaping our times with God the most? As Andy shared last week in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, it says, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced or distracted or lured away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I feel that because of this thing all of the time. Lured away to other things. The last point is compassion. Is this helping me to love my neighbor? And I think like we probably are all on the same page by now. If different content and if different devices are distracting us from God, they're probably distracting us from one another too. But I read, um, sorry, I didn't read. I, I was watching Platonic. I don't know if there's any Platonic fans here. I wasn't the biggest fan of it. It's on Apple TV. But um, season one, episode one, scene one, is a scene where this family are sitting together for Friday night movie time. And they're all in the living room together. The parents put the popcorn in the middle of the table. And they say, so what are we going to watch? And the youngest daughter says, the emoji movie. And everyone just groans, like, no, we're not doing that again. We've watched that a hundred times as a family. And then the slightly older son, maybe he's eight, he just throws out all these like slasher films, horror films that he wants to watch. They're like, how do you know about that? Like, we, we are not watching that as a family. And there's just this argument between the three kids that ensues around what they're going to watch. And the scene ends, and it goes to another scene. The three kids are sitting on the couch next to each other, all with headphones on, or watching a different tablet, or watching a different movie, and the parents are off doing something else. And you just see how technology has enabled us to do things that in the past we couldn't do. Technology has enabled the way that people interact to change because of the options that it gives us. That family time together has been disrupted by the technology, the devices, and all the content that we have access to. Andy Crouch again on the TechWise family, he, he's got 10 TechWise commitments that they had as a family. It's a really helpful, practical book. But he says one of theirs is, we use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. 
And I find that so convicting and so beautiful. Purposeful use, not aimless use. Together, not alone. This was the most challenging thing I read preparing for today. It's from a really excellent book called Digital Liturgies. Um, Samuel James writes this. It's not uncommon to hear modern people talk about how distracted they feel. Like so many others, I've had to confront the problem of distraction and parenting. It seems nearly every day that at some point I will find myself mindlessly thumbing through my phone while my children beg for attention. It's shameful to admit how easy it is to ignore cries of play with me or daddy, look at this, even when there's nothing remotely worthy of my focus going on. In fact, if I'm being honest, that's the case most of the time. A great deal of the attention I grant to the web is unsolicited. There's nothing that merits my turning to it. It's just what I do. I think it would just be so devastating if my daughter grew up thinking this is what I look like, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's maybe like a cheesy thing to say, but on top of that, or if she thought she had to compete with my phone for my attention and think that actually she's not worth my full and undivided attention. She's, she's got to earn my full and undivided attention and do things to perform for me so that I want to watch her and her alone. That would be so sad. But our devices can so easily reshape our time together and what we do and even the way identity is constructed in us and value is constructed in the way that we live and interact with one another. On top of that, it can cultivate envy and jealousy in us. As we look at social media and other people's lives and we start to just dislike people and disconnect with people because they think, why do they get to do that and I don't? or can foster slander and gossip inside of us where we speak negatively about people because of some of the feelings that are going on because of social media. Or judgment and self-righteousness and pride can grow up in us when we look down on others because they're not as good as us or don't have what we have. Or shame and guilt on the other end of the spectrum because we don't feel that we live up to the standard of others. Or you can just go on. Lust and temptation and anger and hatefulness and all of these things that can be fostered through these different technologies and the content that we receive. If what we're using and what we're watching and what we're doing is not helping us love God and love people more, then we're not living in the spirit, we're being led by the flesh. Now, I think this is a very convicting topic. I found it really inspiring and really challenging studying for today, thinking about all of these things. But these lenses are not designed to condemn us. They're designed to help us to think about how we follow Jesus in this world. And I think something that we need to be aware of as we talk about disciplines like this is that God doesn't love us more or like us more if we do well at this stuff or not. You know, you might be sitting here today saying, I, I'm terrible at these things. God loves you deeply. Our righteousness before God is not based on our social media righteousness or our device righteousness. It's in Christ. It's in who He is and in what He's done. The good news of the gospel is not that actually we've been called to follow a God who gives us discipline and self-discipline and things not to do. That's not the message of Jesus. We've been called into a new life with Him in His kingdom where we know the creator of the universe and live in the fullness of life that He has got for us. The good news of the gospel is that even if we're distracted, He's not distracted from us. He's always present to us. Even if we're distracted from Him and our devotional life is a mess, He always wants to be with us and cares deeply about us. That's the gospel. But at the same time, even though our use of devices and content and all of these things might not affect God's love for us, it does affect our love for God and people. 
our love, our focus, our attention is deeply affected by the things that we do. So you can be secure right now in your identity in Jesus if you're a follower of Him. He loves you and He is for you. But for each one of us, if we want to be aware of Him and love Him fully and live in the fullness of the life that He's got for us, it does mean some disciplines and changes and decisions. So I've got four things to end with that we can think about putting in place in our life today. There's definitely more you can find online or through some of the resources I've quoted today. But I think these are four basic things that we can look at implementing in our lives and adding to our lives to help us to love God and people better. The first is this. Do a media and tech audit. Why don't you this week spend a little bit of time thinking through these four lenses that I've just spoken about and think through areas where maybe you want to change or you want to start some things or stop some things. Think through the amount of time that you are giving to different websites, different apps, different devices. Think through the quantity and quality of what you're receiving and is it good for you or not? For some of you, maybe you don't need to stop anything. For, for others, maybe we need to start some things and be a bit proactive. Do a bit of an audit and just think through where you're at and prayerfully, I think this is an important thing, prayerfully ask the Spirit to convict and lead you. Ask the Spirit to highlight areas of change or what would be best for you and ask the Spirit for His help to change you, to empower you to live the way that He's calling you to live. Secondly, do some digital spring cleaning. This is something I've done over the last month which I found really, really helpful. Look through your phone and see what apps you've got that are non-essential and that are time-wasting and delete them. Look through some of the notifications that you're receiving in email and on your phone and just switch them off so that you're not getting them and not being distracted all of the time by those notifications. And use some self-restricting apps and set some limits on your phone so that you can live according to a rule of life with some of the different things that you use daily, that you don't do more than you would want to on those apps or those devices. Thirdly, when eating or having a coffee or a beer with someone, put your phone away. Leave it in your pocket or leave it in your phone or leave it in your bag or switch it off. Please don't have your phone up on the table with you while you're spending time with that person unless there's an emergency. Tell them, I need my phone on because of work or because of something that's going on. Don't let this distract you from the person that is in front of you. And lastly, I think this is really practical but challenging. Bible, oh sorry, Bible before phone. Bible before phone. Try and start the day as we're going to be trying to go through this Emotionally Healthy Relationships Day-by-Day book together. Try and start the day with Jesus with this resource before you go to your phone. Let this set the agenda for the day, the tone for the day. Let God's word to you be the first thing you're hearing rather than what's coming from this device. I think if we put those four things in place in our lives, that would change us and impact us and help us to be much more aware of God and prayerfully like love one another better. So I want to just spend a moment to pray for us and then Andy's going to lead us into communion. If I could ask the band to come up. Why don't you guys stand with me? Jesus, I think everything we're talking about today is both individual, there's some stuff that we need to put in place in our lives and that we need to be aware of and we need to respond to you in. And at the same time, we live in a system which is constantly trying to distract us and pull us in different directions. I ask you, Jesus, that even now you'd lift our heads to see you and be aware of you. I pray, Lord, there wouldn't be any condemnation in the room, any guilt or shame in the room around areas where we might be weak or fail or need to change or adjust. But I ask you, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. 
Holy Spirit, I ask you in our hearts that you would change our desires and what we want. I ask in our actions that actually we would be much more self-controlled and healthy in the content that we are absorbing, the devices we're using, and how much. And Lord, this is not that we would be just really limited in our tech and our content intake. I pray that you would make us people of love, people who love you deeply and know you deeply and look like you, Jesus, who love deeply like you. I pray where these things are robbing us of the fullness of life, which is in you, that you'd help us be aware of that and that you would bring us more and more into fullness of life. We ask you for your help. We ask you to strengthen us. We ask you to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we get ready to go to communion, one of the, the big ideas with this message is at the heart of the gospel, the cross is about reconciling humanity to God. Jesus is our mediator, the Bible says. There's only one mediator between man and God. It's the man Christ Jesus. So he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He bridges the gap. It's, Christianity is not a religion. It's God met us where we were. It's not humanity trying to reach him like any other religion. It's, it's he did it for us. And he reconciles with us. And then it says throughout the New Testament that God didn't just reconcile us to himself, but to one another. When Jesus died on the cross, it says in the Gospels, he said, it is finished. And the, the veil in the temple was torn, saying that there's no more barrier between God and man, God and humanity that existed for thousands of years. And you think about the work Jesus did to reconcile us to him. And now we have access to him, people for thousands of years dreamed about having. And again, just like the Israelites, but we just go, oh man, I'm just going to be on my phone. And I'm missing the fact that the gospel is about intimacy with God and intimacy with people. And then and again, like, like I mentioned, it, it's not just God and man, it's, it's man and man, it's man and woman, it's, it's humanity. In the garden, when humanity... Um, turns on each other and there's this barrier between us and, and, and racism enters the world and sexism enters the world and um, uh, self-righteousness enters the world and abuse enters the world and power, uh, you know, unhealthy, all that stuff where, where humans use each other. At the cross, he deals with that and goes, no, you can be made one new humanity. The things that used to separate, you don't have to separate you and you can learn to love like I have loved you in this cross. And so as we go to communion today, I really challenge you to, to actually to turn to God in confession and admit, hey, here's where I'm not loving you because I have made this thing an idol. I want attention on social media more than I want the gaze of the Father. I want the power of technology more than I want the power of the Spirit. I let this shape me more than I let you shape me. And let him forgive you and let him empower you to come at these things differently. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. But as you come, you know, acknowledge that sin, but then thank him for the intimacy that is available still. Um, Jesus, I thank you that you came for us and that you didn't just desire to make a way to get rid of our debts and our sin and our guilt, which you did, but you wanted intimacy. 
like in the garden. He said, where are you? Why are you hiding in, in your, your omniscient, your omnipresent? Like you, you know, you, you knew where they were. But you knew the relationship had changed. And God, in sending Jesus, you, you create a way for us to be intimate with God, to be known, to know you and to be known by you, to love you and to be loved by you. And, and where we're letting technology or YouTube, social media, whatever it is, where we're letting that get in the way of our following Jesus faithfully, would we remember the cross as we take communion that, that, that made intimacy possible? Would you humble us, but then would you empower us, Holy Spirit? Would we be people who are led by you, not our devices? And so, Jesus, thank you for dying. Thank you for sending the Spirit. Would you do all kinds of things in our hearts this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.